Well, hello, friends. Today we are in J.D. Simo's home. He's uh, he's our friend and yours. <laughs> we're we're back again. This is actually, I think, our fourth episode together. And today we are really excited because J.D. played, I think, the majority of the guitar work on the new Elvis biopic by Baz Luhrmann and starring. Austin Butler, indeed, and uh, and of course Tom Hanks as the uh, fat-suited uh, Colonel Tom Parker. Yes, yes, the Carney, the Carney, the mastermind. So today we're going to talk about the Elvis movie and mm -hmm. and how you got involved in it, mm -hmm. and also we're going to talk about you've uh, you're, you're finishing up a new record right now, and yeah. you're going to start a tour with mm -hmm. the with Tab Benoit and the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, and uh, you know also you've got. So an updated pedal board, and you've got this Danocaster guitar. So we've got a—that's that's what we're going to cover today. So I just want to dive in and say, what does Elvis mean to you? Well, um, you know, as you know, being as we've discussed many times, you know, best man at my wedding. The reason I moved to Nashville, this man, um, when I was a little boy, that's the reason I started playing guitar was seeing Elvis on television. I was four, and I saw the comeback special on television, a replay of it, which I'm assuming was probably for his birthday or the anniversary of his death or something. And um, it was the mixture of like that and being exposed to the, uh, you know, sort of Saturday Night Live, Blues Brothers and all that kind of stuff. Like that was sort of my way into music. Booker T and the MGs and stuff from the from the Blues Brother movie as well, but seeing Elvis on television is really what did it. And then, of course, figuring out that that's Scotty Moore and James Burton later, and then way later finding out about Reggie Young and Tommy Tedesco and you know the other guys that contributed, Hank Garland and and Grady Martin and you know, but um, what it means, you know, it's just the earliest. Uh, influence for me, yeah. you know. What was it about it that pulled you in? I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's probably what billions of people love about Elvis. I mean, he just was, you know, he's a, he's Coca Cola. He's uh, the New York Yankees. He's Mickey Mouse. You know, like he's 
you know, the Beatles, you know, it's like there's, there's only so many things in the history of, of uh, modern times, at least, that are that iconic and that world-renowned. And I don't think there is a way to totally kind of encapsulate it because that's what makes all those things so uniquely special, you know. Um, but he definitely, you know, he's at that, you know, I, I, for me it was, uh, it was just uh, amazing looking, interesting, you know, all the same things that anyone else would you know, and especially as a young child, I think that you're you're taken with, uh, you know, uh, you don't really know why you're being drawn in when you're four years old. You know, now being the father of a three and a half year old, like it's just, you know, which surprisingly she's very taken yeah. with Elvis now as well. So it's like I get to see it through her eyes and it's like, whoa, okay. I, I think that, uh, you know, in... In one of our past, you know, interviews with with Reggie Young, and he he mentioned Elvis, and that he was not in any way really te he was a fan of Elvis in the fifties. But sure. then, when they had the, the the sessions that would end up being you know Elvis in Memphis with Suspicious Minds and all those tunes, that he really had very low expectations. Mm -hmm. And yet, when Elvis came in the room, it was like there was a presence, and it was just that even though he wasn't even a fan at that point. That he was just so taken aback, and he had such a charisma to him. Yeah, yeah. which Reggie did too. God yeah. rest his soul. Yeah. So, how did you get involved with the film? I was on tour in the summer of uh, 2018, and uh, my friend Dave Cobb called me. We were in um, we were we were in Albuquerque um, on our way home. We were dead heading home, as as they say in the business from the last show, which I think was in Los Angeles or something. And uh, I've known Dave since probably 2012 or something like that, but we'd never worked together. We'd been friends, hung out, geeked out and all that, but I'd never worked on anything with him. And in the interim, he, he became Dave Cobb, the, this incredible... Um, Grammy Award-winning um, producer um, and sort of has ushered in this new Nashville uh, sound uh, with uh, the likes of producing Chris Stapleton and uh, Jason Isbell and Sturgill Simpson and the Secret Sisters and doing the Star is Born soundtrack and all the, you know, many other things too. <clears throat> and so he called me and I was like, why is Dave calling me? And Dave, so I picked the phone up and I said, hey, what's going on? And he's like, hey, man, um, are you going to be home this weekend? And I, you know, under normal circumstances pre-COVID, I wasn't much um, for years. I mean, we were doing 200. Pre-COVID, it was 200 plus every year from 2015 onward. But I was on the way. I was like, man, I'm on the way home. I'll be home, you know, tomorrow. What's up? And he's like, well, I'm working on this pretty big project. It's an Elvis movie. And... Um, like you to come in and play guitar. I'd like you to do the Scotty Moore stuff and, you know, whatever else we need. And I said, sure, I'd love to, you know. So we went in, and this is before Austin was even cast. Um, and Tom Hanks was, was, was cast at that point. Um, but uh, that was it. And so... I showed up at RCAA, which, you know, ironically is 
where you know a lot of the stuff was cut either there or in RCA's Studio B, of course. And uh, RCAA nowadays, of course, is Dave's. Dave curates the, you know, he's the main occupant, if you will, of RCA Studio A. And um, so showed up, and Baz Larman was there with his uh, crew of people, and um, we started sort of, you know, sort of getting stuff together, but it was more of a kind of getting to know, sort of feeling things out sort of thing, I think. In retrospect, it was probably Dave and Baz getting to know one another and so on and so forth. Um, again, I'm a very low rung on, you know, on a picture of this size, you know, it's, there's, uh, many layers to it and I'm just one tiny little piece of it. But, uh, uh, I'm glad going into it though. I didn't know who Baz Lerman was. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't understand the magnitude, uh, of, of all this at all. And, and that's, I consider a blessing in, um, uh, in retrospect. You might have been a little more nervous. Absolutely. Yeah. I wasn't nervous at all. Like, what? All this music and 60, 50, 60, I was, I was not intimidated at all with that. But as things progressed, I understood the scope of what was going on here. <laughs> and it went, and it, but then it, then it was like, oh, all right, all right. Yeah. This is kind of a big deal. Yeah. So, so and, and of course, being that, that you, we're an, are an Elvis fan, and and so th things start really moving forward. Yeah, no, we uh, we did many um, uh, groups of sessions, um, and when I say we, it was uh, uh, myself and my friend Chris Powell on drums, and um, some of the stuff was with um, uh, my friend Brian Allen, who uh, myself, Brian, and Chris have worked on lots and lots of projects for, for Dave these last couple of years, lots of records and, and stuff. Um, but also in the very, for, for the Scotty Moore fifties, Bill Black era, Dave, um, asked me for recommendations, uh, for upright for Bill Black. And I was really happy to give him my old friend, Joe Fix number from the Don Kelly band. And so Joe actually played the upright, played the Bill Black stuff. And that was really great because that was the first time I'd played with him in, you know, eight years probably since the, since I left Don's band. And um, also going back 15 years or so, he actually played Bill Black in Walk the Line. If you watch oh. the Johnny Cash biopic, yeah. Joe actually plays Bill Black in that movie. He's in several scenes. And so that was really funny. And Baz, I think, liked that after the fact. Like, you know, yeah. when I explained to him that, you know, because, of course, Joe wasn't going to go up to Baz Luhrmann and tell him that. Yeah. But, like, as a side, I was like, you know, he was in. And he was like, really? You know, like, it was cool. So, What was your impression of Baz? <clears throat> he is a... He's a presence. He, you know he's in the room. Um, he's very impressive. He's very well-spoken. He's very good-looking. He's, he's, he's very striking in the way that he presents himself. Um, and not in an over-showy uh, kind of way. He just has this, 
you know, like, I guess like I would, uh, like an old school movie star would, I suppose. Like if Cary Grant walked in the room or something, he has this presence about him. And um, he was very, um, the times, all the times I was around, which he was not present for all the sessions. He was present for some of them. Um, but, uh, he was very concerned with authenticity. He was very concerned with things being, you know, very intricately correct. Um, but also he was very, um, and especially after Austin was cast and we did a round of sessions with Austin, um, which are the performances in the film for the Louisiana Hayride and the Milton Berle show and all that, all the music that was cut for those scenes. You know, that's the first time Austin had ever been in a recording studio. And he did an amazing job. And he, you know, he had only just been cast and it's like, what a responsibility. And he was just right in to cut stuff with us. And he was great. And, um, Anyway, what I was going to say is Baz, to him specifically, but to all of us, you know, Baz was very, uh, he was like about trying to capture an energy or a vibe and not having it be an impersonation, whether, especially in Austin's case, but also in our case. Like he was like, I want it to be authentically correct, but I, I don't want you to completely mimic every part of it because I want you to interpret what this person would play, you know. And And have energy and not just be uh, mimicry. Exactly. And he was very keen on that. And he noticed, too, like if I did multiple takes in a row or something and I was tending to do something the same way, he he would notice and he would be like, make sure to vary it some, you know. Like he was very, he was, it was great to work with. So were most of the tracks, because you're cutting these tracks before the movie is shot, mm-hmm. and so and were most of these live? Oh, yeah, all of them. Yeah, yeah every so, one of them was live to yeah. tape. And so then, when they're filming, they're using playback. Correct. And so they're, they're playing, and so you've got to have a lot of energy mm-hmm. in those recordings so that it translates on the film. Yeah. And then also, those guys have to pantomime to what you played, too. Right. Which I can't even, you know, I mean, I'm terrible at, um, I can learn stuff exact as, I mean, Zach knows me very well, but still I vary a lot, which is what makes me a good session musician because I don't, I I will vary. Like if left to my own devices, I will play something completely different every time. And yeah, I mean, I can't even begin to think the challenge of, what they had the actors yeah. <clears throat> but there were one there's one instance where we didn't cut something before they shot and it was because of covid restrictions um where there's like a rehearsal scene in Las Vegas where Elvis is sort of talking the the sort of jumpsuit era band James Burton and Ronnie Tut and you know all them through what he's wanting them to do on uh, That's All Right Mama or C.C. Ryder, I forget. And um, they cut it, 
they filmed it, but we hadn't cut playback to it. And so we had to cut playback after the fact. Ooh. And it was, that was a whole, that was a whole day of really hard work on our part. It's really, really hard to, oh. when you don't have a grid and there's not a, like, things were coming in and out at odd times. And it's like the only way that we could do it was to completely chart this entire thing out. And then we had to execute it just right because essentially wow. we're playing to what they've done, you know, and it's a lot harder to do it that way. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's the only time that that happened that I, that, that I was a part of at least. So thankfully I only had to go through it once. Yeah. So you mentioned before that, of course, you had to, uh, you know, you had to play the parts that were originally done, of course, by Scotty Moore and Grady Martin, Hank Garland and Reggie Young and James Burton and Tommy Tedesco and all these guys. So, you know, how, you know, did you, did you just study them? And then, of course, thinking about tones and things like that. You know, let's let, let's just start with Scotty. So when you're when you so did you learn the parts and then y'all chose gear to go go with it? <clears throat> yeah, um, I was given a roadmap before each session of like what Baz was wanting to 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 get, so I'd be able to do my homework. <clears throat> and luckily, you know, all that stuff was sort of really ingrained in me anyway, so it wasn't. A big stretch um, and yeah with Scotty we started at the beginning the very beginning that first session um, <clears throat> where we went to Carter's and got basically every big-bodied Gibson they had I brought my ES5 but it was clearly too dark for what we were needing <clears throat> so we had a whole we auditioned a whole host of guitars and we ended up picking out this L5 that was um it was a 50s L5 that uh it just sounded the best the most like Scotty <clears throat> and amplifier wise it was difficult because for a minute I was like well maybe I could have a friend reach out to Deke Dickerson or right. because he or, has Scotty's old amp I, or I have another friend actually up in New York who actually owns the amp, um, a collector up there who owns Scotty's, the the actual, yeah. And, um, but, you know, it was clear to me that it was just not going to be worth the time or effort, I think, and we needed to get on with it. So um, we tried a whole bunch of different things and we ended up using... Um, this old Rickenbacker amp that um, Dave owns. And it's a 5Y3, early 60s. But again, it was it was bright enough to do what we needed. You know, because a lot of times with like Tweed Deluxes and stuff like that, you're fighting the darkness. And, you know, Scotty's sound was... I mean, there are times where it's darker, like on That's Alright Mama, it's darker and so on and so forth. But you know his stuff has a has almost a twang to it sometimes. So it's yeah. that was the thing that we were trying to in, capture, you know. And then using a uh, a tube uh, echoplex uh, in front of it that would that ended up being the Scotty, yeah. and and mic'd with a with a uh, with a seven, uh, RC, old RCA seventy seven um, going through <clears throat> the old tape machine. 
and um, the old um, RCA preamps, uh, mic pre's and stuff. Everything was cut to tape and everything was um, very period correct. Like, you know, the the Sun stuff was cut three track and, you know. Wow. It was it was really fun, you yeah. know. It was so, very authentic. So the Scotty stuff is a mid fifties L five mm -hmm. with an old Rickenbacker amp. So is that like a like a five water? Is it? Yeah. Is it? It was just some type of small amp with like yeah. an eight or a ten or something mm -hmm. like that. And Dave and, still has it. Yeah, yeah, and a tube Echoplex, and that's mm -hmm. that's the Scotty sound. Yeah, and then um, <coughs> over the course of the um, like for. The Sister Rosetta Thorpe scenes, I used my Jazz Master that I tuned down that's out of phase in the middle. Yeah. Because a lot of two things. One is she often tuned down a whole step or a step and a half. I think that probably had more to do with where her voice was. Just, right. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing, having listened to tons of her. Um, and she um, early on played archtop guitars, but then had her SG with three pickups, uh, which the one phase is kind of, the one phase, the one, one position is yeah. kind of out of phase. And so again, like trying to, for a minute there, it was like, well, you know, I could play an arch top and do the finger style and play just like her. But it was like, again, trying to capture that thing that seemed identifiably her. It just ended up that my jazz master tuned down out of phase did it. And yeah. so, um, use that into that same Rickenbacker amp. That Rickenbacker amp really proved useful because it's, it just really sounded period. It sounded 40s and 50s yeah. uh, without being too dark. And uh, the James Burton stuff, um, Dave has a beautiful 56 Esquire, um, much like, much like yours. And, um, he also has this um, 66 or 67 Super Reverb that, you know, I've played through a lot of Supers. Yeah. That Super is unlike any I've ever heard. And especially from a recording standpoint, it's got that ping that sounds like Bakersfield. It's got mm -hmm. this ping in it. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's that reverb tank or if it's the speakers or, but that tell that Esquire into that just sounds so dead on. Yeah. And so that was probably the easiest because it was like when when it came time <clears throat> for that, it was just like you know Dave and I didn't even. It was just like well Esquire into that right. So so I'm curious. Did uh, besides Sister Rosetta Tharp, were there other guitarists that you uh, other artists that you played the parts for? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, now I don't know uh, because as we're filming this, I actually embarrassingly enough have not seen it yet. I've not been. I've my work schedule has prevented me from going to multiple situations to be able to see this. Right. But uh, so I don't know what has made it into the film. But yeah, we did. Um, we did a Muddy Waters scene. We did uh, um, a Big Boy Crudup scene. The Big Boy Crudup scene was really difficult because he tuned his guitar um, in a really odd fashion. I had to do a fair amount of research. Uh, embarrassing, embarrassingly enough, I've forgotten most of it now. Um, 
but it's similar to um, uh, like Albert Collins, where it right. was like or sort a, of a, it's an open minor chord. It's an open minor chord, and um, getting the fingering of the original "That's All Right, Mama" to feel right was really hard. Um, that was one of the things that was most difficult, and I, I labored with that for a good minute because I was really trying to to get it right and <clears throat> like I say I don't know if it, it made it in but um but that was yeah that was that and then there was uh 60s uh related stuff that I know was Tommy Tedesco so again that was you know the Telecaster into the super um to the best of my recollection uh same thing with the red with Reggie um, with the stuff that was Reggie Young. Um, but yeah, there was a whole bunch of, uh, uh, of, of, of stuff. But the, the most fun for me was the, either the Scotty stuff in particular or the, the, the Sister Rosetta stuff was really fun. Cause Yola, um, was cast to play Sister Rosetta Thorpe and she came in for the session and she was, She's love. She's lovely first and foremost, but it's like she, she was so well prepared and so perfect for the part, and, um, and I love that music so much that it was just so fun to like play it and hear her, you know, next to me singing it. It was just that was that was a really fun day. So yeah. it was a lot of fun days, but that was a fun day. Did Austin have a, a vocal coach with him there or no. anything? He just he just kind of went into it. And uh, from interviews that I've he seen... He may have, but yeah. I didn't notice okay. or okay. know of there being one there, Yeah, I should it, say. It's, he even went so far as to really try to cover the different eras where... You know, because Elvis sang differently. He sang very differently in the 50s versus the 60s versus into the 70s. And he was talking about how he, he, even his voice... And his singing sound came more from like his face, like in the '70s, and you can hear how there's there's such a different tonality to his to his voice. I'm really, I'm thrilled for the whole thing because, <clears throat> as an Elvis fan, you know, I think at least, you know, like you're a little bit older than me, so your generation, certainly my generation, and now the generation or two behind me um i think really since the baby boomers you know elvis's legacy has been tainted by this sort of um you know very um this caricature this sort of um, cartoon thing um the elvis impersonator Yes. All this cheesy, you know, really, and in most times in very poor taste. Um, and it's like his true kind of genius and, you know, the real, you know, the thing that made him so special has been so shrouded over. And it's, I'm just really grateful that, um, you know, in the end, so much care was was taken and that's something that Baz um you know he 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 every once in a while during the sessions he would have these big um you know where he wanted to speak to all of us you know and be the, and be the director 
and which you know as a session musician is really not normal as you as you know as a musician like in the recording process you kind of keep your head down and you work really fast and when the moment is perfect you don't say anything because you're you know you're right on it so it's like you don't want to spook it right because you you sort of innately know when you're right on it but it's like with you know sort of that meeting with the film <coughs> baz would have these very inspirational talks that were brilliant to listen to it was like listening to Patton talk or something you know it was just it was beautiful or winston churchill or something you know it was it was casting a, a beautiful vision it was incredible the, yeah. yeah but it, what was funny is like you know multiple times you know that would happen and then we'd have to like sort of start over to get back to the point where we were yeah. right on the perform you know the take that we needed um but he 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 spoke very eloquently and very impassioned about wanting to um right the wrongs that um, that have been paid him and his legacy uh, since he passed away. Yeah. And, uh, and that was very, um, that bled over into every aspect that at least I was privy to, which again is a very small fact. I mean, you know, the more time went on, the more um, important people in the back of the room that I had no idea who they were, but it was clear that they were incredibly important. <laughs> you know, like it was like, okay, this is a big deal. I, yeah. I get it. <laughs> Handful of favorite Elvis tunes. Um, I think um, his version of Blue Moon. That's my favorite. Is it? Yeah, it is. The one off the Sun Session. Yeah. It's so eerie and beautiful, and it's been used in soundtracks. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's an incredible, very moody performance. Um, probably that. Um, uh, you'll Never Walk Alone, which is, you know, like he'll, he's like, his heart is breaking on that one. Um, and then probably Unchained Melody, you know, right before he passed away, you know, the version from the right from the from the last special, um, you know, because it's really sad. I know that plays a part in the movie, and I was happy about that too because it's just such a, you know, at heart. I think that the thing that as a as an adult draws me in. Um, is um you know there's there's few things i think that are as compelling as like is sadness you know the sadness in someone's eyes the um somebody who allows um someone that they don't know to see their vulnerability to experience it with them yeah because it's really easy for us to paint on the posterior of that we're fine and that we're got it all together and uh uh but harnessing that in the song and including the audience with you yeah it's just there's nothing more powerful and you know i think that the poignancy of like that performance of unchained melody is like you know he's a broken man you know he's he's been to the mountaintop and 
and his heart is broken, you know, and all of the success and all of the money and all of the acclaim, all the cars, all the fancy clothes, all the property, all of the uh, acclaim um, can't fix a broken heart, you know, and it's just very moving, you know, because that's something that you, you know, is not part of the, of, of, of the American dream of the thing that I think is so profoundly mythical about Elvis that, you know, he, he's this, you know, sort of Greek, um, mythical fi figure, but he, uh, you know, but he's broken and he, and he dies a tragic, um, has a tragic end. And, um, in a lot of ways, it's like, you know, there's a lot of symbolism there, you know, there's, you know, without getting, uh, John Lennon about this, but there's, a, you know, there's like, I think Bono said, uh, at one point, it's like, you know, remember kids, you know, rock stars out there, you know, Jesus died for our sins, you know, and it's like, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, he, he, he did his death and his decline and everything, you know, it's like it, it symbolizes sort of the first, even though Hendrix and, and Janis Joplin and, you know, there were many others that had already passed away. It's like, you know, Elvis had this full arc, you know, like, you know, the meteoric rise, and then sort of the fall, and then he becomes a movie star, and then it gets really bad, and then he has this incredible comeback, and then it's this slow decline to a tragic end, and it's just, you know, he's the first, you know, the first to go through all those arcs. So, you know, I think it's important to take it all, you know, as one, as one piece and not the you know, what the world has kind of done, which is like his last 18 months, you know, has lived in infamy ever since. It's like, man, there's, you know, that's the sad part, you yeah. know? It's like, there's this other part that's there's, like there's unreal. The glory. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, especially, you know, what made him, him, those first few years, I mean, it's just, where did that come from, you know? It's incredible. So working with Dave Cobb with the Elvis uh, thing has has resulted in other work also. Well, I guess you've you've been kind of doing other you know soundtrack work and album work with him. Tell tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I mean um, it's been a wonderful. Um, it's 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 partly that and partly COVID because previous to COVID, um, as I mentioned, I I mean I was gone. I made 90% of my living from touring. So, you know, that was just the way it was. Um, and so COVID happens and I'm home and slowly, you know, I start like many of my friends reaching out to other friends, other musicians, collaborating on stuff via sending tracks back and forth. The El This Elvis project is going on 
you know, starting and stopping through this whole through this whole time period. So then that's going well. So Dave starts, um, you know, occasionally having me come into work on other stuff. I met some people through the process of working on that particular project, which led to other projects, which if you do a good job and you're amiable, one job leads to can lead to 10 more yeah. jobs. And it just sort of fingers out like that. You know, it's sort of like tree branches, you know. And so, yeah, there were multiple, um, you know, through that whole, it was just a wonderful amalgam of like doing this with Dave and then starting to work on more stuff with Dave and then also being home. And as things started to slowly turn, I had, you know, reconnected with, people who, you know, in some cases producers or friends of mine who had become music supervisors over the last decade and stuff. And all of a sudden I had time and, and oh, by the way, I heard you were working on this. And so it's interesting because, you know, basically in 2012-ish, I hopped out of session work to, to be an artist and really with the exception of a handful of times which were cool times you know like working with with uh, Jack White or you know <laughs> there were a handful of really cool times but for the most part not really doing much of anything other than my own stuff now I'm pretty much you know back to what I would consider pretty much full time when I'm not on the road and doing my own stuff, it's kind of half and half now. Yeah, and, and it's just awesome. To contrast this, you know, I, I remember, you know, of course we've known each other a long yeah. time. That you know, you got so fed up with session work, you didn't want to have anything to do with it because it just had stopped being fun. And part of that is because they were asking you at times to be someone else or to fit into some other mold. And then all of a sudden, then you're a mature artist on your own right. We're talking about now. And all of a sudden, people are asking you to be you, and that's the that's well, the, yeah. The, the biggest difference. the biggest difference is you know, um, w without being um, uh, w without being uncouth or, or hurtful in any way, you know, it's every single th group of like whether it's any project with Dave or um, uh, my uh, my friends uh, Brooke Sutton and. Um, the group of fellows over at the Wood Brothers studio uh, on the west side that I, I, I've worked on a lot of stuff over there uh, with them, uh, or my friend David Kahn um, in New York. Um, everything that I'm being called to participate in now is very, very much up my alley. And that is an incredible uh, gift because... Yeah. Um, I really haven't been asked to work on anything that I wasn't really super into. And that is a very rare thing and it's something that I'm really grateful for. And it's, yes, it's, it's, it's entirely because, um, for whatever it's worth, you know, what I've been able to do artistically is informed the types of things that people would, would want me to be involved in. And so it's, it's it's pretty amazing. I'm very grateful because life right now is really, really, really exciting and fun. And the pool of musicians I get to work with and 
the types of projects are just really fun. And then, and then, you know, it's like I go out on the road and do, you know, now I'm doing much shorter runs. I'm doing, you know, 10 shows or 12 shows or something. And it's like, it's like a little vacation. It's like, now I'll go, you know, have fun with my friends for a couple of weeks and, you know, and it's very easy going and natural. Not that it ever wasn't, but it's just like, it's a very different yeah. vibe now. It's very. That's a, a really, you know, rare spot to be able into where yeah. you can, you can do a fair amount of studio work and then also have your own artist thing and be able to go out and play shows to be able to have both those things is, is really a, a bit of having your cake and eating it too. It is. So yeah. hopefully I don't, you know, hopefully I don't screw it up. <laughs> I'm trying not to, because it's really fun, and it's, you know, just on to the next thing and just trying to do the best I can. So you've had, you have greasy time that uh-huh. you're that you're still doing, <laughs> and and which you know, you you kind of do this feed through to, uh, together is it, yeah. yeah. It was a beautiful, um, like every other great thing in my life that is just kind of floated down from the heavens. Uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of uh, of uh, quarantine, um, at the behest of my wife. Um, she said, you know, you should, um, you know, after about a month or so, she was like, everybody's starting to do these live streams. You should just do one, you know, and see if you like it. And I said, that'd be cool, I guess. And I said, you know, and me being the classic overthinker, um, you know, I was like, all right, well, I'll pick a theme and I'll do a bunch of research and I'll, you know, showcase however many artists and I'll have photo references and, you know, all this stuff, you know, all this above and beyond, you know, stuff. But it was really fun and it was a great, it was one of many things through the quarantine process that was, you know, uh, incredibly fortuitous in the, you know, looking at it now. And so I started doing those and, um, 
uh, a mutual friend, uh, Mark DiLorenzo, um, who's a gentleman in, in Los Angeles, um, uh, ironically, who had who had been in the in the big time m- um, movie business for a very long time, um, working for Fox, um, was looking to put together a new sort of um, venture um, for a, a streaming platform, and he was watching these things I was doing, um, which were especially those first 15 or 20 i mean were there was a lot of views it was kind of crazy uh and so he reached out to me and he, and he said i got this idea and you know would you like to be part of it and i said absolutely and um so we started developing and when i say we it was me and him you know um going through the nuts and bolts of getting the tech side of it worked out, which was a nightmare to try and get it to be able to be functional in multiple different applications. So like, not only from a the audience's perspective of like, how can they view this and interact and video chat with the artist and question and so on and so forth, and making sure that that was all compatible with any and every type of variant known to man but then from the artist's standpoint like i'm nuts so it's like of course i'm gonna figure out how to use my console and upload videos and upload you know and and learn all of that but you know needless to say there are many artists that are nowhere capable or interested in doing that so we had to build out a, a relatively wide net of tech that could be applicable from the artistic standpoint. And that was a very long process and it was a very hard process. And I know way more about all of that than I care to know. Um, but it was an incredibly uh, enlightening process and we put together a really wonderful platform. And in the process of doing so, I reached out you know, to very dear friends of mine and friends of yours as well, David Grissom, Greg Koch, uh, um, uh, Ariel Posen, uh, Josh Smith, Kirk Fletcher, um, a whole host of incredible musicians. And he's, you know, built it into a very beautiful, you know, um, platform. And when I'm home, I'm very grateful to get to do the show um, and interact with people all over the world. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a whole nother muscle that I didn't know that I had, you know. Yeah. And now it's become a really big part of my life. And, and Mark also has just, you know, he's like one of my best friends, you know. He's a dear, dear man. It's, it's very interesting how the last couple of years have forced a lot of people to become even more entrepreneurial and how to, uh, to pick up a lot of other skills that, uh, yeah. so it's been, it's been a time to either grow or die. Indeed. I think it's really interesting and I think it's fun. And, um, you know, I'm, as a music fan, I mean, I'm a fan of, uh, of all types of the, the you know, the, the growing 
uh, network of content that's out there. And, uh, you know, I, you know, not, you know, going out of line here, but I mean, I love, uh, watching, uh, watching all of your content. I mean, you're a friend of mine and a very good friend of mine. So it's kind of strange sometimes if I'm making dinner and, you know, there's Zach (laughs) propped up on my phone, you know, but, uh, nonetheless, you know, it's like you make content that, that I like personally. So it's, it's, it's great, you know? Thank you. Tell us about the, the new record. I, you know, it, it, I guess it doesn't have, does it have a name at this point? I mean, it's just, we're going to call it live. We're going to call it live from the house of Greece, okay. um, which is my funny moniker here, which is a play on, uh, you know, my love of Daptone records in New York. And there's is the house of soul. And, oh. you know, I like to eat, food that's terrible for me can't you tell and um <laughs> so um needless to say those peanut butter and banana sandwiches are awesome yeah. but um uh yeah we uh we got together we over the course of the pandemic um i uh finally took sort of engineering and getting down here uh honed in uh, seriously for the fir- for, for the very first time because I had the time to do it. I've used down here to record stuff in the past, but sort of really tuning it in and seeking the tutelage of friends to help me and so on and so forth. Like really, it had eluded me. So I finally had the time to do it. And so Adam and I, uh, Adam Abershoff and I would get together down here uh, during lockdown once a week or so and uh for over a year uh and record um and we recorded a hundred and some things and so it's like in in that time i became a much better engineer um and um really learned how to get the most out of here so yeah just last week we you know my plan had initially been to document some songs that have been uh, in the live show for the last year or so that aren't on a record yet and uh, maybe to have like a little vinyl EP or something um, to come out later in the year but um, yeah we recorded it and I sent it to the label and they're very they're very into it so yeah. so you, you played me the tracks you know beforehand and, and it was it was nice to hear a real amalgamation of a lot of your different influences and a lot of different sounds that you've had over the last you know decade or more, where you have everything from some of the psychedelic, for lack of better terms, Hendrixy kind of influences. You've got like some, some gated fuzz things. There's the uh, really strong meters influence on on a tune. There's uh, some Santa Monica slide guitar influence, and and you've always been a, a beautiful slide player, but you've you've really taken uh more into the the melodic area and so that was a a really wonderful thing to hear and there's also there's a a tune that uh that features some of your mandolin playing and uh which is kind of an an, a little bit of an homage to uh to rye so that's absolutely i've really gotten into all of it and um um yeah slide playing has continued to be um, something I really like mining and I'm edging more and more because I've always been an improviser, but it's like the sort of call of jazz is 
becoming stronger and stronger. Um, and I love, you know, and have utmost respect for modern players like Julian Lodge and, um, and especially, obviously, Bill Frizzell. And, um, so th those kind of things. And, yeah, I mean, certainly Rye and Blake Mills and, um, you know, mixed up with everything else. It's, you know, it's kind of... I'm really enjoying being in that in that space right now, you know. We're back, and uh, we're going to talk gear. Yeah. So, so you know, you're like like everyone. You know, your gear is always evolving, and uh, and sometimes you've gone straight to the amp. Sometimes you've had you know pedals and stuff like that. That kind of comes and goes. So you're you you've got a pedal board again. So let's just let's just start there. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what what you've got on here, and uh, of course we're we're very glad that you've got a a, a True Tone CS7 on there. Yeah, and I. You know, there was one thing I wanted to, you know, and this is totally unwarranted, un, un, you know, they haven't paid me for this or anything. It's not shilling by any means. There's a thing, you know, so I, I've always been like a big fuzz user. Um, and fuzz, especially old ones, are very finicky about what's around them, what's in line with them. And I can tell you that I've driven our dear friend Barry at Exact Tone Solutions absolutely crazy with why is this making noise? Why is that? It shouldn't. There's no... And it's because it's a very microphonic, finicky circuit that conventional logic doesn't always fix the problem. And... I have multiple times, for my own curiosity, not for anything else, compared multiple power supplies, okay? And the only one that consistently never makes inherent noise is, is the CS7. Um, <laughs> I've never had an issue with it. And there is one in particular that is probably the the most popular other than the cs7 that literally just the ground hum in line with my old fuzz face is uh, is unusable 
Wow. For whatever reason. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on there. Well, we're, but we're just ha- we're that ha- is absolutely not. That is my own. Yeah. You know, always trying to make sure that everything is as good as it can be, and there's I could talk to you for hours about the finicky thing about having fuzz. Like there's certain, <clears throat> without getting too deep down the rabbit trail, as you say, um, fuzzes don't like sp- certain types of buffers. Mm-hmm. They hate them. And they make not only when the fuzz is engaged sound terrible, but they... Even when things are off. Exactly. Yeah, and that is a very common thing that I've learned. And so, like, in you know... The one thing I've used for a long time is the Strymon El Capistan. The reason I started using it in the first place is, is because it was the only delay pedal that could be in line with the old fuzz face and be okay, yeah. actually. It wasn't because... I've, now I've gotten used to it, and, and I'm just used to it, and I like it. But it's like, initially, it was because it was the only one that would... That would work that with would, the rest of your rig. Exactly. Yeah. So... So you've got the the mythos, uh, you know, kind of clone. Uh. I do. Um, Zach Broyles from Mythos is an old friend. Um, uh, he's got a great name. Yeah. As a, as well, you know, it, um, he. Uh, I met him years ago. Uh, he was one of the the OGs at Carter Vintage uh, back in the day. Um, and uh, as I was just relating to uh, relaying to Bob, uh, I. Uh, um, I have distinct memories of him with his first crop of pedals that he built, and I was fairly rude because I was very anti-pedal at the time, and he was just politely like wanting to show me stuff, and I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interested. It's not my. And so I've I've eaten my words uh, uh, many times over as I've reconnected with him because that sounds amazing. This is his um, Wildwood version Mjolnir, which I only use, I haven't used an overdrive pedal um, in 15 years, because um, I just turn the amp up. Yeah. <clears throat> I use fuzz all the time, but overdrive, but I use it um, when I'm playing slide. Especially playing, um, especially playing with single coil pickups again. Um, that's really what I use the Mjolnir for is when I'm playing slide, because yeah. it just gives me that extra little bit of to fat, fatten it up when when using a uh, especially a yeah. Because I never turn the gain much up past nine, um, yeah. which ironically back when I had a real Klon. Back when they were $300, $500 in the early 2000s or whatever, or $400, and it was like, oh, this is obscene. That was how I would set it then, too. Um, What are these other guys? So um, this right here, I'm really excited about. My friend Aaron, Dominion Fuzz up in Canada, 
I have searched long for something to use other than my vintage um, BC-109 uh, fuzz face, uh, which has been like my main effect that I've used for several years now. And I have lots of really nice ones that are all really good in different ways, but none of them were quite, you know. Um, I have this um, one that my buddy Kind Effects down in Florida made me that is really good, that is one I've gone to, but uh, oftentimes gone to that one in particular. Um, and I also have an Isle of Tone one that's really great too. But this is fantastic, and uh, so, Hold your ears, people in this room. It's that <coughs> word. The note kind of caves in on itself. Yes. It's really, really, really hard to replicate. And um, Aaron is another gentleman, um, just like Zach and just like Bob, uh, uh, when you started Visual Sound, he's one guy. Yeah. Um, and this is his first um like mass he's done like custom builds for people but this is his first actual like i'm releasing this and it came out two days ago and it sold out in two minutes that's, and it's a good start i'm really into that i mean it's just small business good people people putting a lot of hard work into something you know, it's fantastic, and it's germanium and silicon, and I tend to always use the silicon because it's the one that's most stable. Yeah. <clears throat> and then this is another mythos. This is um, basically his version of a of a cob. Uh, kind of like an Octavia. Because it makes, um, <clears throat> I mean, obviously it can sound Hendrixy, but I like playing it light like that because it, to me, it sounds more like a horn. Yeah. You know, um, there's a version on, that'll be on the new record of us playing Coltrane's Afro Blue. Yes, you can, I, you can hear that. You can hear the little bit. Of, there's a because there's a touch of gate, and you can hear the octave. Yeah. And to me, it sounds more like a reed. You know. Yeah. To the you know. But how old is this wah? Uh, that's a 70s, and um, so people are going to hate me for doing this, but whatever, I want to help you. So the TDK inductor mid-70s, um, Crybaby Wise, they were made um, from like 73 onward, and now, like... Golden era trash can stack of dime um, inductor crybabies and Vox Wawas are 
I mean, I never in a million years would have thought that I'd see them going the prices that they're going. It's just outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> and so these were made slightly later. People like to poo-poo them. I've had lots of old was, and I think that these are every bit as good. Yeah. I bought this one for $65. And... I'm sure that the prices are probably going up on them because I think the word is out on yeah. them. But get one while you still can, I guess. And it's the big red square inductor that's labeled TDK. And usually the backside of them are labeled Sepulveda. Yeah. And they're, they're just great, you know. So for, you know... All that, um, you know, Leo Nocentelli or, um, was it Craig McMullen who played with Curtis Mayfield and all that? It just really does all that really nice. And then the aforementioned El Capistan, which I love the, uh, I've tried to get off it, but I'm so used to the, uh, to the, uh, to the runaway feature, um, that, like when I'm playing and I create a soundscape that I can't get off it. And then uh, the beautiful freeze pedal, which is absolutely a la Frizzell, Frizzell absolutely, yeah. where... Using it to have land, make landscapes, um, uh, even in the band context, I like, you know, and then I learned about those things, uh, I don't even know what those are called, that you can control the volume or the control of it with your feet. Yeah. I remember Kenny Vaughn using those 10 years ago and being like, that's nifty. Yeah. It is kind so, of a handy way to be able to control yeah. the volume of the loop, as yeah. it were. With, it's with not really a loop, it's just grabbing. The thing yeah. I like about the freeze, though, is like if I want it to be real low, like I'll chord the way that I want something to, because it'll grab big clusters, and that's the thing that's cool. So it's like. So it's like that's grabbing that, but I could also. Where it'll grab. I like that. I, that if you want to get something that's a little bit more dissonant, or something that has a little more harmonic complexity, it actually does it. You yeah. know, um, that's one of the things that I think is really cool about that. The Danocaster. <laughs> the Danocaster. It's all your fault. Yeah, because you've you've been you you kind of did the Kelly <clears throat> thing back in the Don Kelly days and a little bit before that. 
and then it was it was kind of like you got more into the Gibson thing, you know, Les Pauls for a while, and then and then of course you got Red, which you know still a fantastic guitar yeah. that you've played for well over a decade, and then yeah, you know, and then just recently you got this. Uh, this was uh, Dan Strain's personal guitar. So, well, like many good things in my life, folks, I was actually having a very deep, phone, long phone conversation with Zach. Um, a few weeks ago, and uh, for the last six months or so, um, there's another guitar that I'll talk about here in a minute that sort of started my path into sort of go, sort of going back to um, bolt on necks, bolt on necks, single coil pickups, um, that kind of thing. And so I was sort of um, moving in that direction naturally, and I have a beautiful Echo Park guitar that um, that I that I've been using a lot as well. That has a like a Valco pickup here and a gold foil in the neck, and I was really feeling connected to that instrument. But there were certain things about it that I wasn't I wasn't completely you know in the deep end with it. I was heading to the deep end but not there yet and so yeah zach and i were having a, a conversation about many other things mo mo more important stuff um but uh we got on guitars for a second and i just mentioned casually that i was kind of looking for something and and zach in a very offhanded nature was like you should call dan strain you know and it was like that's a great idea you know that's an idea so i called dan and uh, said, do you got anything? And of course he said, no, I can barely make them fast enough, which is the truth. And uh, we had a little conversation. I said, well, you know, as you make them, you know, I said, I don't really want you to build me anything because it never really works out in my experience. Um, you sort of have to find something happenstance, nothing I've ever had made or was made or something like that ever really took it was always the instruments that sort of fell out of nowhere are the ones that really made the most difference in my life um so as we're having this phone this conversation he you know he's, he says well he says you know i've got mine and of course i'm like well i can't <coughs> that's your i can't have i can't take yours and he's like well try it he's yeah. like there's things about it that are quirky he's like it's it's certainly not for everybody and he's like you never know and he's like to be honest with you i have all these great instruments and he's like you know i i he was sort of talking himself into it as we're having this conversation so i was working uh that day um yeah i was over at the wood brothers place that day and um so i stopped at his house that night and you know it was just that thing where you pick something up and you're just like wow magic guitar and um as a telecaster goes you know it's just kind of i see now 10 years ago that it was like when i met adam and our first you know bandmate frank swart you know it's very important to me to move in a different direction and to do something different than I had done. As a mature 
as a more mature, I should say, uh, man, uh, I recognize now that, uh, you know, I could have just, you know, funneled all that energy into just creativity and artistry. But, you know, for me, I had to, you know, buy new clothes. I had to use a different instrument. You I had, had to close to, that chapter and start another one right. in, a, in a very... And, uh, you know, in a very dramatic fashion. And, yeah. the, you know, it's absolutely not necessary, you know, but... Um, that's what I did nonetheless. And, you know, just sitting there at Dan's house, having not played a Telecaster for quite some time, uh, not owning one for several years now, um, you know, my hands go right back to how they were for years. And it was just like, this is crazy. Why did I ever, why did I ever not do this? Because it's just so natural. You know, and then I remember, you know, after the fact, you know, it's like I remember <coughs> when I got uh, red, when I got my 335, how long it took me to get used to playing it. And I like persevered through it because I was so bullheaded and like, no, this is what I'm doing. And it's just funny, you know, it's just, you know, the older version of me goes, that's stupid and ridiculous. Like, what's wrong with you? But it was part of the journey, whatever. But it's just like, you know, Take it from me, kids. Just sometimes the path of least resistance is 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 okay. Put it that way. So this is like an early '60s style telly, but then you've yeah. got old pickups on here. So this is a, a patent number humbucker, you know, from yeah. this from the early '60s, and then you've got a a '56, you know, bridge pickup, which is really because it's just raised D and G. The rest are flat pole. That's that's my favorite era pickup. Mine too. And then the steel saddles, which I know is a big yeah it, it's thing much with you. more much more dynamic the the brass just it's if you need to tame the high end brass is great, but also it compresses and things that i i don't want i don't want it to do yeah no, and these are all pots um and if you you know it's funny because I mean I've only had this thing a few weeks, but like gosh, I mean I think. I got like 500 messages on my Instagram, like asking about this, and yeah. in particular, people asking about the placement of this pickup. Yeah, because a lot, a lot of guys will install them closer mm -hmm. to the heel while this is pushed back more, which is actually helpful. It's it's fantastic. It's very balanced. Put some talent on. Between position is is hellacious. <laughs> Whose lick is that? That's Reggie. <laughs> Young and so many others. Exactly. <laughs> Only Reggie. But it's very like the middle is very Cornell yeah. to me. I think that's Upchurch, isn't it? Playing on that? I think it's Upchurch on that. And then... 
ready for the <coughs> for the the New York Jazz telly. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Indeed. I've been in a big Cornell um, Cornell stuff uh, phase as of late. Why wouldn't? And you? and obviously Frizzell and all that kind of stuff. The stuff that's really intriguing to me right now is sort of as I get more into what I would call fractured playing, which is how I sort of break down a lot of what Frizzell does, which makes sense to me. It's not something that like I've heard said or something, but trying to apply slide to that. So, you know. Like using chromatics with slide, <coughs> which to me sounds more like a horn because, you know, the horn is not, you know, it's not, but you know, it's it's all fluid, so it's like trying, or like, um, I remember uh, years ago, there's a video of Jack Pearson playing um, No You Needn't, uh, Monk, you know. You know, like just, I'm I'm really enjoying exploring that you know element. So, and I think you're using that old deluxe reverb today, an old black face one. Back, I'm back, yeah. baby. <laughs> yes, I've got this. Uh, I finally, um, there's a dear fan uh, named Jim up in Ohio who is a mutual friend of Oddly Freed, who. Uh, saw a rig rundown uh, that I did with Premier Guitar and where I talk about my beloved um, deluxe reverb that got stolen in Italy. <clears throat> I've had many deluxe reverbs since then. None of them were anywhere close. And um, he reached out through my agent, of all things. He could have just hit me on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, but... Uh, through my agent and said, I got an amp I really want to get to JD. And uh, he ended up uh, sending it here through Audley's longtime guitar tech. And um, I went and picked it up at uh, at Cheryl Crow rehearsals, uh, this. And um, it's got a s insanely high plate voltage like my old one did, which I think is part of what made it so great. Mm -hmm. Um this one has a plate voltage that's like it's like 480 which is like a normal deluxe reverb is 420 ish you know and it's like 480 is like what 100 watt old plexi 100 watt marshalls you know so it's like i run it lower uh voltage um but i do think that that's part of because it, it it sounds and feels very much so everything goes in circles so yes everything. i'm very Go round very, in circles. Very, yes. Yeah. Yes. Guys don't got no man day. <laughs> but uh, I do like different speakers now, though. I, yeah. I've really fallen in love with the Alessandro. Uh, the ceramic six, one? The ceramic one sounds yeah. amazing. <clears throat> the only reason being is, um, well, one, I don't have 1,500 Don Kelly gigs to break in another vintage 30. It takes a long um, time to get them. It centered. takes a long time to get a vintage 30 to sound great. Um, but uh, also on a microphone, um, I'm just getting to where I like uh, older. Uh, to me, a vintage 30 can sound more modern. 
It if does. it's not yeah. broken in. <clears throat> if it's broken in, it can sound great. But if it's in that not in that sweet spot, it can sound more modern. And the Alessandro I stumbled upon by accident, really. And to me it under a microphone it sounds more like an old record when yeah. it's under a micro when it you know. So I think a lot of these instruments you've kind of covered in 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 recent uh, in in recent features, mm -hmm. but uh, you do uh, you do have this fun pickup that's <laughs> on this. Uh, so this is again like a, a Bigsby style pickup that's uh, that's made by uh, Eric Galetta okay. in Los yeah. Angeles. So and that is um, it's fantastic. And this guitar has really. I've long looked for sort of the acoustic that was the one, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, Lightning Hopkins. It's all it took was yeah. borrowing Lightning's guitar when we yeah. were in Houston. And, um, which is, you know, not far from where you grew up. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I picked this up at Carter Vintage. Um, I went in there looking for a J50. And they had four, I think, three or four, because that's the beauty of Carter Vintage. Yeah. It's like, oh, I've decided I want to whatever, and it's like... They got a couple. They got, yeah, pick the good one, you know? Yeah. So that one has been really invaluable. Um, done a lot of stuff with it. And yeah, the aforementioned. Um, this is the, the Echo Park with your... Uh, no, this one isn't no. the Echo Park. This is... Uh, this is one that my friend um, George Bradfute yeah. put together. So here, let me. So this is what started the move towards why I'm playing a Telecaster. Yeah. So I started playing more and more songs um, in low tuning, like baritone tuning, essentially. Um, which I prefer B to B, just for my voice. And um, <clears throat> I'm not a fan of baritones, essentially. I like bass sixes, which I know you do. Um, but actual baritones feel weird to me um, most of the time. Not the Jerry Jones I bought from you a long time ago, yeah. which I should have kept, by the way. <laughs> um, we've discussed that recently i should have kept that was a great guitar oh. but nonetheless i digress so um my buddy joe mcmahon who's a great producer and session guitar player really and he's a really close friend um he has a really cool old um tysco that he tunes down and has string length back here and things to sort of compensate for the tension and so i asked him i was like man where'd you get that and he said, I got this from George Bradfield years ago. And George is a uh, uh, pr really well-known producer and um, sort of a tinkerer and sort of a, a Nashville institution, as it were. He's put lots of very notable instruments in a lot of real famous guys' hands. And he's just a sweetheart of a guy and an amazing musician. And so anyway, I called... George, this is several years ago now, and I called George and I said, hey man, uh, I'm looking for something um, to tune down to B. I don't really know what I'm looking for. 
Um, and he's a guy that at any given time might have 300 instruments for whatever reason. Yeah. Mandolins, violins, uh, kettle drums. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's amazing. Like the things that he'll have knocking around his, his Madison home. Um, and he's like, I got a few things that might work. You know, he's very soft-spoken. And so um, I go over to his house and he had several things all set up perfectly, tuned to be waiting for me. And this was sitting there um, in its original uh, situation, which was a different pick card, different pickups. But <clears throat> I picked it up and I went, man, this thing's great. And it didn't go out of tune and it was, it was just perfect. And this is an old body and like a music craft neck, like Red Volcart used to get off eBay. Mm -hmm. Um, and he refinished it all with like, you know, hardware store paint from Hillsborough hardware or wherever. And, um, so I bought it for a ridiculously cheap amount of money. Cause that's another way that, that George is. And then over time I used it more and more and more and more. And it had, um, a set of pickups. It had a couple of different sets of pickups in it. And then my buddy Wade Coffer, who is now the head of the repair department at Carter Vintage, um, who's an amazing guitar player, by the way. Um, he makes his own pickups and rewinds old lap steel pickups and gold foils and stuff like that. And he's really into Rye Cooter. He's really into all that stuff. <clears throat> so I gave him this and I said, this is one of my favorite instruments. I have a feeling that you can do something really magic to it. And so he, this is a Valco that he rewound and put in a different, um, uh, in, in a different cover. And this is an old gold foil that he rewound. And... Obviously out of phase on purpose. And then, um, again, I turn my, my tone knobs down on most of these. It's got that a lot of high-end harmonic. It's like I really wanted, like over time, was using this more and more, and in a way was kind of wanting something that was this, but in a standard tune guitar, which yeah. is what has now ended up being the Telecaster, which makes sense, because this essentially is like a Telecaster pickup. Yeah. <clears throat> but I love this instrument, so... And another of your, you know, kind of local Nashville, you know, kind of relationships. You've you're also using Stringjoy yeah. strings, and and you've been using those for a little while. Yeah, I switched over the course of the pandemic, and um, they make the round core, um, pure nickel. So it makes, as I know, you've gone deep down that hole. It makes much a much bigger difference than people might realize, yeah. especially for clean sounds. Yeah. 
Um, they tend to have more fundamental. It's it's interesting. They don't have as much of the boingy brassiness. There's none of the boing, but there's a lot of. I wish that there wasn't as much of a difference. Oh. I mean, it's great because now I'm with string joy, and it's like I use exactly what I want all the time now. But it's like when I started experimenting over the course of the of the pandemic, I was. It, you know, it kind of angered me that I noticed so much of a difference, you know, because it's yes. that thing you don't want to, yeah. for something so trivial, I didn't want it to be, you know. Yeah, because they're they're harder to get. They're, harder they're to more get. expensive. They're, they're, harder they're a little get. more problematic even to, to, to put them on the guitar. It's like you have to bend them off so that they don't come unraveled. And you yeah. got to be careful. Yeah. That's another, yes. Take it from us. If you're going to try these, when you, okay, we're going to save you 15 bucks here, folks. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So when you're snipping it, okay, snip it really cleanly and hard, okay? Like not, like, do it with authority and then, like, don't pull on it in any way, okay? You want to take it and seed it immediately because if you don't, if you pull it in any way, it's going to pull right off and it's going to it's going to ruin the string okay and it's not a defect it's how those strings are made and it's because it's a round core instead right. they 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 started doing a hex core because the hex core holds onto the windings better but it changes the sound ask Zach. Yeah. so yeah i call him for when i yeah. i have the luxury that you don't in that Occasionally, I need to know something or feel like I need to know something or want to know something, and I just call him and say, and I, I'm calling to ask Zach. And I have JD on speed dial. So, yeah. <laughs> Do they have, even have that anymore? I don't anyway. think so. Well, well, JD, I really appreciate you doing this. I want to thank, of course, uh, True Tone and, uh, you know, for allowing, and JD wow. for, uh, for allowing us to, to be here. And uh, and to, of course. to be, be in the uh, in the in the the, the house of Greece, <laughs> yes, which I love. And thank you for talking about Elvis. And thank you for uh, thank you for our friendship. I'm right back at you, man. It's an honor and a privilege. All right. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.